Praise God. Welcome to Bridal Love Ministries podcast with Poppy Hopeflish teaching on Song of Songs. Praise God. <laughs> I want to praise God. I couldn't keep it in. I'm so sorry, but I'm not sorry. Praise God again. They're all looking at me with big eyes and what are you doing? I just said praise God like it was too soon. It's never too soon. Do you agree? I know you're on my side. Let's praise God. So good evening to you, prisoners of hope. Here we are together again. In the name above all names, Jesus Messiah, our blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I hope you are up to date uh, with the story of Song of Songs, the story of King Solomon, who represents the King Jesus, our bridegroom, and of Salome, the shepherd girl, you, yes, you, his bride. By now, you must know him as your good shepherd of Psalm 23. I trust you also know him as the joyful gazelle, chapter 2. And last week, you came to know him as your glorious almighty king, chapter 3. And now tonight, he comes to you, his garden of intimacy. He comes as the gardener. So let's begin by listening to the text of chapter 4. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, beautiful. My love, there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Look from the top of Armana, from the top of Senir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring sealed up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant henna with spikenard 
spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Chapter 4 The Bride is a Garden and a Fountain Let's start with a scripture. John 15, verse 1 and 2 I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, that stops bearing, he cuts away. He trims it off and takes it away. And he cleanses and repeatedly prunes every branch that continues to bear fruit, to make it bear more and richer and more excellent fruit. Verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever lives in me and I in him bears much abundant fruit. However, apart from me, Cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. The bride is entering her next season. She went from winter, the sleep of intimacy with Jesus, locked down in the king's chambers in chapter 1, to spring, where he showed her the season has changed. He has big plans for her. He is ready to go to the nations and he wants to take her with him. But she declined. His dream is too big for her. He left her and went into the wilderness, the mountains of Petar, the mountains of separation. But in chapter 3, she misses him so much, she decides to leave her comfort zone and starts to search for him in the city and on the streets. Her search starts the process of growing into spiritual maturity. She points him out to others as the bridegroom king. She points him out to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem. And so she enters summer, a season where she will start to bear much fruit. Chapter 4 The seed of love for Jesus was sown during the time of winter in the king's chamber. It sprouted into spring where she enjoyed his presence so much she became lovesick and now she bears fruit and she's filled with Holy Spirit. Streams of living water are flowing from her belly and mouth and she gives it freely to anyone who asks. She is in full summer season. The bridegroom enjoys her thoroughly. He describes her beauty and proudly recites her attributes. He is ready for the next step. The pruning of the bride. He takes note of her every feature, her eyes, her hair, her teeth, lips, mouth, temples, her neck and her breasts. He wants to encourage her 
that she is growing into spiritual maturity. Ephesians 5.27 That he might present the church, the bride, to himself in glorious splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such things, that she might be holy and faultless. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. He calls her beautiful twice over. She's developed dove's eyes. A dove can only focus on one thing at a time, single vision. She trusts him because her perspective is constantly being broadened to see what the Spirit wants her to see. Ephesians 1.18 She's having the eyes of her heart flooded with light so that she can know and understand the hope to which he has called her and how rich is his glorious inheritance in the saints he set apart once. We've done this verse before, do you remember? You have to ask him daily, Lord, please flood the eyes of my heart with your light so that I can know and understand the hope to which you have called me. What is this hope he has called you to? Of course, to be with him. Your hope is that he will come and rapture you. Unless you go before the time, all by yourself, special delivery through death. But your hope is to be with him forever. And how rich is his glorious inheritance? He wants you to understand, I am your inheritance, but my beloved Song of Songs is all about, you are my inheritance. The bride's veil is a covering of humility. It also serves to treasure and cover the deeper revelations of her bridegroom. This she receives in the king's chamber, the place of intimacy. Beloved, do not speak of everything he shows you in the king's chamber. First get his permission on what you can share and how and when to share because it's holy things. Her hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. The whole length of it shines. The long hair speaks of authority and consecration, being set apart, like Samson the Nazarene. You are set apart for him. Verse 2 he says, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Her teeth represent the ability to eat meat. 1 Corinthians 3 However, brethren, I could not talk to you as to spiritual men, but as to non-spiritual, men of the flesh, in whom the carnal nature predominates, as to mere infants in the new life in Christ, unable to talk yet. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet strong enough to be ready for it. But even yet you are not strong enough to be ready for it. Paul so much wanted to feed the Corinthians with strong meat, but he saw that they are not ready for it. The last time he visited this congregation, he fed them with milk. So he was looking forward to feeding them with meat now, and yet he has to leave it. He says, even yet, you are not strong enough yet. Some people go through their whole life on milk, never getting to the point of eating solid food. 
He also compares a thief with shorn sheep. Shorn sheep means all the excess wool is removed. Wool speaks of the flesh of a man's own efforts. This means she's no longer into performance mode. She just obeys him because she loves him. The sheep have also been washed, cleansed from the mud. In the same way, the bride is cleansed by the word in Ephesians 5.26. Every tooth has a twin. This speaks of the double blessing, the result of meditation on the word. She pondered, considered and meditated on her bridegroom's words. And that made her her own. She treasures them in her heart now. In verse 3 he says, Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Her red lips speak of the blood of salvation, and her words that she speak. Let's look at these scriptures, Colossians 4.6. Look at what her speech has become. Let your speech at all time be gracious, pleasant and winsome, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may never be at a loss to know how you ought to answer anyone who puts a question to you. You see, her lips has been cleansed by the coal of fire and by his blood. In Hebrew 9.22 we read, Under the law almost everything is purified by means of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is neither release from sin and its guilt, nor the remission of the due and merited punishment for sins. We still in Passover, even though on the calendar it's over. It's never over. Every time you kiss the sun, you'll taste the blood on your lips. And that reminds you, when you take your communion, that your sins are forgiven. Her lips are red as scarlet, like the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites. It's been purified. That's why her speech has changed. She speaks life, not death anymore. Her vocabulary is full of praise and worship thanksgiving and grace. That's why her mouth pleases him. She also asked for his kisses, and that has been the source of her deeper intimacy with him. He rejoices in this. She has in trust opened her mouth wide, and he has filled it, as we read in Psalm 81 verse 10. In Philippians 4, 8, we hear, For the rest, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is worthy of reverence and is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and lovable, whatever is kind and winsome and gracious, if there is any virtue and excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on and weigh and take account of these things. Fix your minds on them. I think this Philippians 4.8 is really a scripture that we have to keep on our hearts and on our minds in the time of the lockdown because there's so many things that take our minds away from whatever is good and wholesome. Her temples are like an open pomegranate, the seeds of which are blood red and very sweet. The pomegranate represents her emotions. Her emotions are very tender towards him. She's sensitive to anything that might grieve him. She wears a veil representing her intimate relationship 
that is hidden with Christ in God, as we see in Colossians 3.3. 3. The pomegranate also speaks of righteousness and holiness. In the time of Israel, little bells and pomegranates of copper were sewn to the hem of the priest's garment. It was also carved on the pillars of the temple. The pits and sap of the pomegranate are very healthy and have healing qualities. And the open fruit is heart-shaped with four divisions. In chapter 8, the bride offers her emotions and pain as a drink offering to the king when she gives him a glass of pomegranate juice. No wonder the pomegranate has made a comeback like you've not never seen before. Everything is flavoured with pomegranate, whether it's toiletries or juice or whatever. I think it's a sign of the bridegroom that he is coming, that you must get your emotions in order. He wants you to give your emotions to him. She will do that, but only in chapter 8. In verse 4 he says, Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. He compares her neck with the Tower of David. In times of war, it was an armory. If you defeated the enemy, you would hang their shields all along the tower walls as trophies of your victory. A thousand shields hang on the wall, its shields of faith. The neck also represents our free will. We can be stubborn or choose to submit with a willing and sincere heart to the bridegroom. He is telling her, I see the shields, the trophies around your neck like a necklace. They are symbols of the wars in which you overcame the evil one, Satan, your enemy. She does not have a clue what he is talking about. But remember, when he says something, it's prophetic. It will happen. She's just following her bridegroom because she can't bear to be without him. But he is telling her all about spiritual warfare. She feels quite comfortable where she is now, just sharing him and pointing him out to others. She still has no idea of spiritual warfare and what he's talking about. She just accepts it as jewelry. In Ephesians 6, we find the bridegroom's special armor for his bride. He wants to turn this outcast bride into a warrior bride. So let us study the armor that Father has so lovingly prepared for you, his daughter-in-law, his son's bride. We find that in Ephesians 6, 11-12. Put on God's whole armor. See, it's Father, Father God who made this armor, who provided it for you. It's the armor of a heavy-armed soldier. God supplies it. And you must wear it more than you care about wearing these masks that everybody is so worried about. Our armor is a spiritual armor. You can wear your mask, but don't put your trust in it. Put your trust in God and put on your armor. It's an armor that Father supplies. Why? So that you may be able to successfully stand up against all the strategies and the deceits of the devil. For we are not wrestling with flesh and blood. We are not contending only with physical opponents. 
but we offer a wrestling against the despotisms, against the powers, against the master spirits who are the world rulers of this present darkness. We are against spirit forces of wickedness in the heavenly, in the supernatural sphere. So therefore, you must know your armor and you must put it on daily. It's a spiritual act prophetically and it carries great authority in the spiritual realm. I'm not going to do all the scriptures of each piece of the armor. You can do that all by yourself. All the scriptures are there. Let's start with the helmet of salvation. I take my thoughts captive even before I put on the helmet of salvation. That's the scripture 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5. You put your hands on your forehead. You can do it right now with me so that you can have an exercise and say in the name of Jesus, I take my thoughts captive into obedience to Jesus Christ. Especially when your mind goes round and round and round and you can't break the circle. You have to do a prophetic physical act. To say this aloud, you must hear it. The enemy must hear it and God loves to hear your voice. When you take your thoughts captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. Otherwise he will try, the enemy will try to take your thoughts captive with fear, worry, and all those depressing things. Satan comes against our minds and thoughts, and the helmet protects us from him. The second piece is the breastplate of righteousness. The Lord is my righteousness. I am made righteous by the blood of the Son. We've repeated this now every week when we do the statements of the blood. The breastplate also protects my heart. The third piece is the shield of faith. God is the author and perfecter of our faith. The shield was held in the left hand in front of the body, protecting the person from neck down. It's made of six layers of animal skin and it was dipped in oil, the Holy Spirit, and in water, the Word, daily. The oil and water make the shield impenetrable to the fiery darts of the enemy. So daily dip your shield of faith in the oil of the Holy Spirit and in the water of the word. The fourth one, the sword of the Spirit. The sword is the word of God made flesh. You must attack with the word in spiritual warfare and you must use it to cast down strongholds. It's a two-edged sword which represents the Logos word that's the literal word, and the rhema word, that's your prophetic word. The sword was held in the right hand. The right hand is the one with which we fight. It's also the one that he fights with. The fifth one, the belt of truth. It covers the loins. The armor is attached to it. The belt of truth must always be tightened in order to be fruitful and multiply. It often gets loose because we're living in a world of lies. That's why, even without thinking it, you can believe a lie or speak a lie. So check on that when you tighten the belt of truth around your hips. With the tongue we create life or death. Therefore speak truth and live. Proverbs 18.21 The sixth one is the shoes of peace. The shoes for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Each shoe had six spices, so a pair had 12 spikes. That is the number of authority and government. They were used to crush the enemy underfoot. They were also metal shields to cover the lower leg because opponents kicked one another with the spiked shoes. Use the shoes to face the enemy with readiness. Stand and do not be moved. Know your authority in Christ and declare, I will take my stand for Christ and not be moved. The seventh one is prayer and the glory of God that will protect you from your behind. Remember, God protected his people by day with the cloud of glory and by night through the cloud of fire. That's why he will do the same for you. He will have your back. Prayer is also my arrow, a small but effective weapon against the strategies of the enemy. So we pray without ceasing. And of course, the gift of tongues is very important in this case that you pray unceasingly. Once you know your armor, you will rise up in your authority in Christ. And please write out these scriptures if you really want him to take you deeper into the mystery and the powerful weapons of spiritual warfare. In verse 5 he says, Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. He compares her breasts with fawns. This refers to the ability to feed, to nourish others and to her spiritual maturity. Remember we said he is El Shaddai, the full-breasted one. You drank from him and she drank from him in chapter 1. Now her own breasts are fast filling up with milk and she's to give this milk to others. The breasts are full of the undiluted milk of the word because she only feeds on purity, on white lilies. She's becoming like her El Shaddai. The two breasts also represent the double anointing, the same as we saw with the teeth that each has a twin. Now it's two breasts, there is a double anointing that rests on her. This double anointing is the anointing of Elijah the prophet and of John the Baptist the prophet. This means you must learn how to baptize people. I read a testimony of a lady who said she was so trusting the Lord to get baptized it was arranged for the 29th of April. I don't know who you are, I just read your email. And then it was cancelled because it was to be done at church. If you feel the urge and it, the Holy Spirit is really prompting you, you can baptize yourself at home in your bath or ask your husband to baptize you. Don't wait if Holy Spirit is telling you to get baptized. She chews solid food and meat with her teeth. This implies deep meditation on the word. And she also eats white lilies, the purity, for these are her food. This should be your food as well, beloved. May your teeth be strong and sharp as you dive into the word and eat the solid food that you get in the word. May you also feed on the white lilies purity. Jesus himself said he had special food. His food was to do the will of his father. John 4 34. So it must be with the bride. Let 
His will become your food. Fill yourself with purity and make it your food to do His will and you will grow in sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, be alert and aware of what you listen to and what you watch. Refuse anything that could diminish your spiritual sensitivity. Jesus says in Matthew 6.28 that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of the ladies of the field. His point was he wanted to array his bride with even greater glory than that of Solomon. Verse 6, she answers, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. This is very important. This is a turning point in the middle of chapter 4. Because remember, in chapter 2, he asked her to go with him to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And she said, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, Turn, my beloved. In other words, I'm not going with you. Now she's going, but she's going alone. Remember, she's still looking for him. But while she's looking for him, she is fulfilling her mandate to tell others about him. She declares her commitment to him now. She's not afraid anymore. She's too absorbed by him to be afraid. Her declaration of love and her commitment to be set apart for him are the basis which every mature believer will need to grow from. She says she will find her way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. She will have to share in his suffering and in rejection. She doesn't know that yet because myrrh is die to self and frankincense is for prayer. But she also hopes for the resurrection. When she says my way, she doesn't mean it like in a rebellious way or like Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way. No, my way refers to the unique calling on every believer's life and each one's road to fulfillment will be different. So beloved, there's a way, your way, that he will lead you up this mountain, that he will lead you to bring your road into fulfillment. He planned your road to be separate, to be different, so do not compare it with the roads of others. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Again, he's speaking about the rapture. Let's look at the scripture in Philippians 3.10. She's actually described there. There's where she is now on her journey. She says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers, and that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope 
that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is, of course, the New King James Amplified. Another person asked me the other day, what Bible am I using? The text is the New King James, but the extra scriptures comes from the New King James Amplified. And I think this verse tells you why we must use an Amplified Bible, because it gives you the double layers of meaning of the Hebrew language, which you will not find in other languages. Memorize this. Say to yourself daily, my determined purpose is that I may know him. That I may become progressively more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Perceiving and recognizing, understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. And that I may also come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection. That I may come to know his resurrection power. Many believers stop right there. They just want to know and operate in resurrection power. But the verse continues. And that I may so share in his sufferings. By sharing in his sufferings, you will be continually transformed into his likeness. There's no other way. Only through suffering you will continually be transformed into his likeness, even into his death. So if you have to die for your faith in Jesus Christ, you still have the hope that you will be resurrected from the dead. We know what we hope for. She's going up this mountain, and a mountain is a very interesting place of spiritual encounters. It's a place of surrender, a place of sacrifice, a place of death, struggle and battle, of receiving and giving instructions. It's a place of glorification, of spiritual warfare, and also a place of rest. We see the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Abram offers his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Moses dies on Mount Nebo. The prophet Micah invites us to go up to the mountain of the Lord that he will teach us his ways. Elijah wins the battle against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus often withdrew to a mountain to pray. He was transfigured on a mountain. He was tempted by Satan on a mountain. And Jesus ascended to the Father in heaven from the Mount of Olives, and he will descend on the Mountain of Olives when he returns to commence his thousand-year reign of peace. The Mountain of Myrrh speaks of obstacles in her walk of faith, but he has already proved himself able to dance effortlessly over all the mountains and problems. Chapter 2 The Gazelle the incense on the mountain represents prayer. She will pray a lot. Let's look at Psalm 141. Let my prayer be set forth as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. This is how she is beginning to pray, Lord. And this is what we ask tonight, Father, as we study this book. And talk to you, we are praying, let our prayers be set forth as incense before you. 
Let our excitement as we listen or study or read the book of Song of Songs, let it be as incense before you. And as we lift up our hands in praise, let it be as an evening sacrifice to you. She has learned to do intercessory prayers for others. And in Revelation 5, 8 we read, And when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders of the heavenly Sanhedrin, that will be the bride, prostrated themselves before the Lamb, and each was holding a harp, lute or guitar, and they had golden bowls full of incense, fragrant spices and gums for burning, which are the prayers of God's people, the saints. South Africa, our praise does not disappear into the lights when we pray. It doesn't disappear into the clouds. No, it is caught up by the angels. They add in incense to it and gums and spices. And then they offer it to God. And in the end of Revelation, we see those bowls filled with the prayers of the praying saints. There's fire added to them and it's poured out on the earth. Oh, we can't wait for that fiery prayers to be turned back to earth and to be fulfilled. Now she decides to stay on the mountain until night has passed and the dawn comes. This is in contrast with chapter 2 where she did not have the courage to face this mountain. But she's determined to stay until she has learned to overcome her fears. And this means she's preparing for spiritual warfare. She doesn't know that yet, but her decision is made. The shadows still speak of weakness of the flesh and compromise and little foxes that spoil the vines. But now she trusts him to expose her weaknesses. She doesn't try to hide it from him anymore. She trusts him to expose her weaknesses and to help her deal with them. You see, sometimes we walk with God and we're still wearing fig leaves, trying to hide our nakedness and our weaknesses from God. But he wants to take the fig leaves and give himself in the place. He gave Adam and Eve sackcloth to wear, but to us he gives himself. He says, clothe yourself with me. Allow me to expose your weaknesses and to deal with them. Dawn brings the breakthrough. In this season, by faith, she will start to experience new revelations of who her bridegroom is. It's also a foreshadowing of the time to come when we will see him as he is. The passion of the bride makes him ecstatic. He takes it as a sign of her love and her trust in him. And this completes her beauty. He cries out, verse 7, Oh, you are all fair, beautiful, my love. There's no spot in you. He tells her 13 times how beautiful she is. She's so truly beautiful. He says she is perfect. There are no flaws. This does not mean she's without sin. There are still a couple of tests coming in chapter 5 and more, which she will fail. But she is willing to embrace the cross, his cross, and to pick up her cross. 
and this moves him very deeply. He already sees her as she will become. Let's look at Jude 1, 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you without stumbling or slipping or falling and to present you unblemished, blameless and faultless before the presence of his glory in triumphant joy and exultation with unspeakable ecstatic delight. To the only one God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and splendor and majesty, might and dominion and power and authority before all time and now in this time and forever until all the ages of eternity. Amen. So be it. This is what you will become. This is what he wants his bride to become. He doesn't doubt for a moment that you will become this perfect bride without spot or wrinkle because he says I Jesus your bridegroom I am able my love to keep you from stumbling or slipping or falling and I will present you my bride unblemished blameless and faultless before the presence of my glory I will present you to my father that's what he means God's glory and I will do this with triumphant joy, exultation and an unspeakable ecstatic delight. See, he's so pride, proud of his bride because he did everything. He tells you, I will keep you. To the only one God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be all glory because he says it, then he will do it. We have to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is what we will be in the end. And that is how he treats you. He sees you like that. And the Father is the one who poured the spirit of willingness and love towards his Son on you. Remember in chapter 1 we said, If you feel, I wish I could love Jesus more. In Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, he tells you, I'll pour love for my Son into your heart. The Father now sees you as dead to sin, and a life to Christ. Dead to sin and a life to Christ. So we must live like that. Romans 6.11 So my beloved, consider yourselves dead to sin and your relation to sin broken, but alive to God. You are living in unbroken fellowship with Him, Jesus Christ. Her passion prompts the bridegroom to ask again, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinner and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. He wants her to come with him and see things from his perspective. The intimacy between them is strengthened, so he wants to show her something special. But he can only do it if she comes with him as his bride, as his wife. As his spouse, he's never called her this before. He takes her up high, up there where lions and leopards dwell. This speaks of spiritual warfare. How can it be? If he loves her, he has to take her there. He wants to strengthen and reaffirm his covenant with her. Where? There, in the wilderness, up the mountain, 
Because remember, we saw what takes place on a mountain. He wants to take her there because that is the place where her love for him will undergo further testing, as we see in Hosea 2, verse 14 to 20. How did she get to this place? She must have asked herself. But he answers her, Therefore, behold, I will allure you and bring you into the wilderness, and there I will speak tenderly to your heart. There I will give you your vineyard of intimacy, my love, and I will make your valley of acre, your valley of trouble, to be for you a door of hope, an expectation. You may ask, and what must I do, Lord? And he answers you, and you must sing there, you must sing to me, and you must respond as in the days of your youth, the days of your first love, the days when you just came up out of the land of Egypt, when you came out of the world and you just gave your heart to me, you were singing and you were lovesick for me. You lost that. Please return to your first love. If you've never ever walked this journey, he's taking you now there for the first time. And he's telling you, I brought you here. I wooed you here. And here I'm going to confirm a marriage covenant with you. And in this day, that day, says the Lord, you will call me Ishi, my husband. You shall no more call me Baal. For I will take away the names of the balls out of your mouth. They shall not no more be mentioned or seriously remembered by their name. I will deliver you from all the idols that you clung to. I will deliver you from idolatry and adultery and whatever sin became your Baal, your father, the one you served. But I have to do it in the wilderness. And then comes this wonderful promise in verse 18 and he says, And in that day I will make a covenant for you. And that day has come for you, my beloved. It's in this course, in this two weeks that we do this course. If you've not covenant with him yet before, remember he asks you, he wants to make the covenant. You only have to say yes. He says, I will make a covenant with you and with the living creatures of the open country, and with the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword, and I will abolish all battle equipment and conflict out of the land, and I will make you lie down safely. He's talking about the hope that you have. He's speaking about the future, about a thousand-year peace reign, where there will be peace, peace on earth, peace among the people, peace among the animals, because he restored earth. After the seven years where we are with him in heaven and we return, Jesus comes to restore the earth. And he will make his covenant to last. All the living creatures are waiting for this. Romans 8 says, even nature is sighing and waiting for this to happen. Everything will live in peace and there will be no more war. He will abolish all battle equipment. 
and there will only be peace, because Satan the deceiver will be locked up in the bottomless pit for the thousand years. Therefore, you can lie down safely. Yes, it is the Lion of Judah who is returning, and is coming to take vengeance. But to his, those that belong to him, he will always make sure that you can lie down safely. And then in verse 19 he says, And I will betroth you to me. This is his marriage vows. I will betroth you to me forever. For how long? Forever. Why? Forever? Because I'm not a man that I can lie. Shall I say something and not do it? And we say, No, Lord, you always do what you say. You see, your heavenly bridegroom can never lie. You can't make promises and break them where an earthly bridegroom can do that. They can leave you, they can turn away, and they break the covenant. But when he marries you, he says it's forever because I'm not a man that I can lie. And he's not only promising you his faithfulness forever, he also says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will make sure that you will be in right standing with our Father, my Father and your Father. I do it through my blood that was shed for you. I will make sure that you will find justice. My love for you will be steadfast. It will never cease. I will also always have mercy on you. Verse 20. Yes, I will even betroth you to me in stability and in faithfulness. I will stabilize you. Does your life feel like everything has fallen apart? Has your marriage been broken up? Have your family been broken up? Have you lost somebody? Turn to your heavenly bridegroom. He will betroth you in stability and in faithfulness. And what must I do, Lord? You must know me. You must recognize me. You must be acquainted with me. You must appreciate me, give heed to me, and cherish me. It's that same scripture again. Your determined purpose must be to know him. To become progressively more acquainted with him and his ways and his wonders. And to be one with him. That's all he's asking. He will do all of the rest. You see, the bride has left the world. She came out of Egypt, as he said. But she has not yet entered into a resting place. Her resting place is in him. That's why we sing, you're my resting place. In your arms I'm safe. And you let me know you are in control. You embrace me now with your love and your power. So that I can sing glory to my king. Enter into his rest. She can see from where she stands 
she can look on Mount Lebanon. And the Hebrew word amana has the same word as for the word for faith, imana. Therefore, this mountain, this wilderness, is a place where your faith is tested and purified. But after this wilderness experience, you will bear much fruit. And you will learn to wage spiritual warfare. And you will cry many tears. But he is calling you to rise above the danger. He keeps on reassuring you, you are in the right place right now. Because here is where I will prepare you. It's the beauty parlor of the bride. And my bride will wear a crown. And I will give you the crown. There are five crowns in the Bible and we will do them next week. This is the place where I think we must stop and spend time on his marriage proposal to you. And go and read Hosea 2 verse 14 to 20 and believe what he is telling you. You've got to take this before he can start with the crowning of his bride. Because in the end, the final cry of the body of Christ will be that of the bride. The spirit and the bride will cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And when you've become lovesick and you entered into this covenant with him, and he betrothed himself to you forever. This is very holy. And this is why you can say, Come, Lord Jesus, come, you and the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit in you crying out. It's not just something we quote. It must come from your Spirit. I pray the Bridegroom will come and visit you in the weekend in the days ahead that you will experience his manifest presence that you will experience the kisses of his mouth that you will see the fire in his eyes his love for his bride maybe you'll experience his touch or maybe his sweet fragrance will fill your room or maybe he may even leave some of the the dust of the golden streets of heaven on your bed or on your hands or on your forehead just to say I was here I am here I will always be here what a bridegroom you are Jesus what a wonderful father you are Abba Father to pour love in our hearts for your son Jesus and that he did all the work on the cross and after he left he sent Holy Spirit to remind us to let us hear the voice of Jesus through the Holy Spirit oh Holy Spirit you are welcome in this place Oh, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in my heart and in my life. 
come and teach me and remind me of everything that Jesus said and did for me and still wants to do. At last I understand what is my calling, what is the hope you've called me to. Your hope is that I would say yes when you ask to betroth yourself to me. That's the only way I can be with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with the statements of the blood of our Bridegroom King Jesus. The power of the blood of Jesus. The power of the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross when he said Tetelestai. And every drop of blood has power. Because the blood of Jesus has redeemed me from the hand of Satan. It has redeemed me from every curse. In Christ Jesus I am free from every curse and blessed with all blessings. I shall be blessed in my place and my affairs shall be blessed. I shall be blessed at my work and the fruits of my labor shall be blessed. I shall be blessed when I come in and I shall be blessed when I go out. The Lord will cause my enemies who rise up against me to be defeated before my face. They will come at me from one direction but will flee from me in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on my bonds and on everything I put my hand to. And the Lord, my God, will bless me in the land he is giving me. He will establish me as his holy people. And all the people on earth will see that I am called by the name of the Lord. And they will fear me. This speaks of the peace reign as well. The Lord will grant me abundant prosperity. He will open the heavens and the storehouse of his bounty. He'll send rain on my land in season and he'll bless all the work of my hands. So I will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. The Lord will make me the head not the tail and I will always be at the top never at the bottom. The blood of Jesus has sealed an eternal covenant, a marriage covenant for me. The blood of Jesus has reconciled me to and granted me peace with God, the Father, with all people and with all of creation. The blood of Jesus has granted me forgiveness of all my sins. The blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses me from all sin. The blood of Jesus justifies me from all condemnation. So all the accusations of the devil against me are nullified and he makes me righteous as though I have never sinned. He promised that also in Isaiah 2. The blood of Jesus sanctifies me and consecrates me so I become belonging to my Lord, dedicated to him and set apart for his ministry. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience from acts that led to death so that I may serve the living God. He cleanses your conscience, that you will not have to re be reminded of your sins anymore. The blood of Jesus makes me enter the most holy place, the king's chamber, 
to serve the Holy God. The blood of Jesus grants me victory over Satan and all his principalities. The blood of Jesus is the reason for my everlasting rejoicing. Amen.